We served our country like those before us. You know, it was a dangerous era. All of Vietnam was dangerous. The carnage of war left an indelible mark on me. We came back and built lives. As time went on, we faced new challenges and found support to handle them. I went to the VA, talked to my doctor. I started doing groups. I started doing one-on-one -on -one counseling. At MakeTheConnection.net, you can hear our stories and find tools and services available to you. Oh, let's get it. Monday, November 15th, 2021. Warn the Battle, brought to you by the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I am your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. However you listen to Born the Battle, be it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, the players inside the blogs on blogs.va.gov. Hope you're having a good week outside of podcast land. Well, I'm... I wouldn't call this a vacation, but I'm definitely out of the office. I'll be on vacation in a couple of days, though, and I'm excited to go home to Washington State for Thanksgiving, see friends and family. You know, I don't remember the last time I've actually done that, so looking forward to it. It's going to be a good time. All right, so you know what that means. When I'm out of the office, it's a rewind. Uh, so November is Native American Heritage Month, and this week's rewind was one of the first interviews I ever conducted. The guest was, he's somewhat of a Lakota Renaissance man. In his civilian life, he was an assistant basketball coach for Moorhead State. He had been in numerous films and television series, and he's hosted two radio shows. And he also has a dual PhD. He is Army and Vietnam veteran and Lakota warrior, Robert Primo. Enjoy. You come from a very storied uh, family from the Hunk Papa, uh, mm -hmm. Lakota. Yes. Uh, can you can you let a lot of listeners know uh, some of your family history? My great great grandfather, Louis Primo, was Sitting Bull's interpreter, and he was also the interpreter for the Standing Rock Sioux Indian Reservation. And one of his allies was Buffalo Bill Cody. They were good friends, and um, my uncle, Herbert, my uncle Herbert Buffalo Boy, was the most decorated American Indian soldier in World War II. So he parachuted in all five major campaigns, correct? Correct. Uh, Europe, uh, Salerno, Sicily, uh, France, and and Market Garden. Correct. Uh, I guess it's it's not it's probably easy to venture to say that uh, serving the United States. Uh, in, in a time of war was kind of in your blood? You could say that, even though I didn't even know it when I joined the military at 17. Oh, really? Yes. You didn't, you didn't know any of this at the no. time? No. When did, the, when, were you learn, when did you learn all of this? I would say in the, I would say in the 1990s. Oh, wow. We, okay, we'll get to the 90s in, in, a, in a little okay. bit. Uh, yeah. I, want, <laughs> I wanted to get to Vietnam first. You served with the uh, 101st in Vietnam. Why did you decide to join the service in the first place? I just I just wanted to get off the reservation and, and uh, see something else because I just wanted to, well, get off the reservation. But it. Got you. 
uh, and you went through boot camp at Fort Lewis. I didn't know that. I've seen some documentaries that because I'm from Washington State myself. Okay. I, so, but growing up, I never knew there was a boot camp at Fort Lewis. What was that like? Oh, <laughs> it snowed and it snowed and rained most of the time when I, you know, because I took I took basic November, December, January. And we graduated. The, we graduated the first week of February of '69 in Washington State. Oh Washington, man, that, Fort that Lewis. must have been. It must have been raining all the time. Oh, and we were the last unit to use the M14 in basic training. That's amazing. So basically, when you graduate, they were like, "Congratulations, you learned how to use an M14. Here's an M16." Yeah, we do. We did, had the M16 AIT Advanced Individual Training. Oh wow. Where was AIT at? Not Fort Lewis? No, Fort Knox, Kentucky. So you joined, you joined the 101st after AIT? No. After AIT, I went, to, I went to NCO school. Oh, before you joined your first unit? Yeah. I went to non-commissioned officer, non-commissioned officer academy in Fort Knox, Kentucky also. And that was um, 16 weeks of some pretty good training. And being a sergeant at 18 was um, pretty harrowing and challenging. Having having um, authority over men, it was um, very difficult, too, at 18 sure. years old. Sure, I bet. They probably looked at you and go, what do you know that I don't, you know? Yeah. <laughs> that must have been a leadership challenge. Then when I got to Vietnam as a sergeant, I had a good squad leader, John Spider Oakley from he's from Ponca City, Oklahoma. And he had already been in combat two yeah. year two year two two tours in Vietnam, twenty-four months. And we were a combat unit. And um Spider taught me a lot. And he's he's uh today, I hate to say that he's um he has cancer and I I pray for him all the time. I understand. To your unit, you had uh, some pretty, uh, it looks like you had some soldiers that served with a lot of distinction. Yeah. Mike Fitzmaurice, he got he got the Medal of Honor in Quezon, I think, in January or February of 71. But I was already gone from Vietnam. Okay. So that was after Dewey Canyons 1 and 2 and Ripcord. Right. We were in Quezon. Okay. Our unit. We were, we were, um, monitoring and fighting the uh, NVA as they coming down coming down the Ho Chi Minh Trail from from the north and we we had a few few firefights with them quite a few I should say coming down and um, it was then in June 23rd of 1970 my little brother got killed by a by a in a car accident in North, back on the reservation, so I came back because I'm the sole surviving male in my immediate family, and I I didn't go back to a combat unit because of that. Uh, so it was a it was almost like a Saving Private Ryan type of deal. Yeah, pretty close. Gotcha. Only I was gotcha. only mine was the real one. <laughs> I understand. Now, uh, you were sent home, or you were you were you were sent back to Minnesota. Is that correct? Yeah, I, got, I, I was stationed in Minneapolis at Old Fort Snelling on a compassionate reassignment. You, you shared some things with me privately. Do you, do you wish to share what happened back in Minnesota? Sure. Um, okay. During the Vietnam War, 
there were 72 nuclear missiles around Minneapolis, St. Paul. And, and um, I, I was a sergeant of the guard in St. Bonifacius, about 30 miles west of Minneapolis. And going to work on a Monday morning, March 15th, at 6.45 a.m., I was in a car accident. And my two friends who were in my car, Frank and Dave, they were both killed, and the driver of the other car was killed. And I spent three weeks in a coma and my last five months in the Army in the hospital. My gosh. Did, did they, did they, now you didn't get discharged while you were in a coma, correct? Did they, they wait no, until you were? No, I was discharged okay. August 31st of 71. You know, I've never interviewed somebody that's ever been in a coma. What was it like coming out of a coma? Well, you know, I was in a lot of pain. I had tubes all over my body. Yeah. And, but when I woke, when I woke up, my mother was there in the hospital room. My, my sister, my couple of aunts, my aunt from Maryland, my aunt from Chicago. It was, um, it was very good to wake up, <laughs> to put it that way. Well, sure, sure. That's good. <laughs> At least you had your family there. That's good. Um, so after that, you transitioned out of the Army, correct? Yeah, from, from, from that Waconia Ridgeview Hospital in, in uh, Waconia, Minnesota, I was transferred to William Beaumont Hospital in Fort Bliss, Texas. And then uh, the Army sent me to Fort Carson, Colorado for two weeks to be discharged. It took 18 years to get a disability. This is where today the VA should go back to that time period and treat us properly from that time period. And so yeah. that, you know, because... Um, I'll be the first to admit, you, the Vietnam veterans were, had, a, had a very, very short end of the stick when it, come, when it came to how you were treated in service, you know, for when you guys came home uh, to... Um, to everything afterwards, um, and I, I'm, I, I do know that the, the the VA does, you know, is doing a lot better now than it was back then. I think yeah. that's fair. To, I think that's fair to say. Um, now, I did read somewhere that uh, unlike most Vietnam veterans, uh, what was it like coming in back to the reservation to the tribe? Was it, it was it a different experience as a Native American veteran? Yeah, because um, um, for what we've done, what we've done for this country. And, and I look at it like this was our country first. Sure. That's what we call it, Indian country, reservations. It's an Indian country. And we, I, were def, I was defending Indian country first, but, then, then, uh, but defending America. Through, through America, you were defending your own, your own land. Yes. And, but when I did come back, you know, I, I – um, I was under, it was under um, um, deplorable circumstances, my little, my little brother's death. He was 14. And, and then when I got off the plane in Oakland, I knelt down on the ground, kissed this country. I kissed the tarmac because I was glad to be home under dire circumstances, of course, but still, I was glad to be home. And that's when people were walking all, all over the place, not like today. And, um, and I felt something on, my, on the my back of my neck. And here was saliva. And I looked up. Somebody was looking back at me. 
and, and spit on me. And so that, so, you know, because we didn't know, really know, I didn't really know what's going on in, in this country. We read the Star and the Stripes a lot in Vietnam. Yeah. And it told us a lot of stories about what happened at different universities. It, it's amazing. And that, that you have come into the reservation and, and, you know, the OIF and OIF veterans have now is a completely 180 experience um, due to what I think what happened through the Vietnam veterans, you know. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I can't stand that that was a cross that you guys had to bear. So I, I have nothing but respect for those that had to come home to those circumstances. Well, thank you. It's a, that's a greatly appreciated by me and not on behalf of every Vietnam veteran that I represent. Absolutely. So you, you, you transitioned out. Now, how did you start your transition? Did you start with the GI Bill or did you go straight into film? No. <laughs> <laughs> because of my injuries, you know, I lost, I lost like 80 pounds in that, in that accident. Oh, my gosh. And it was, you know, I'm, I was the true 110-pound weakling. Uh, yeah, but you say 110-pound weakling. I looked at your, your photo from Vietnam. You, you look like you could handle your business. I did. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you lost 80 pounds of that, though, after yeah. your accident. Yeah. Yeah, I weighed, I weighed about 190 in Vietnam. So how did you begin your fight back to, I mean... You are now a double PhD. You were in 14 films. Um, how did you begin your fight back? Well, my fight back was uh, going back to my, my, grand, my grandmother's ranch. My grandfather died in 63. And yeah. my grandma, and I was raised in high school on the ranch. And so I went back out there and, and uh, I rehabbed myself. Uh, how, how, like, in what ways? Well, I, my grandma, we had horses on the ranch, we had cattle, and the horses were my love. Mm. And I would, I couldn't, I couldn't ride a horse right away because I was so weak. But I'd go out and and, and um, let the horse know that I loved him. And we had like eighty horses on the ranch, and um, I just grab a couple in the in the pen and who weren't broke and. I would walk up to them and pet them and look at them and they'd look back at me and and I'd just walk up to them and start petting them. And then once they knew that I, that I cared, when I turned around to walk away, they'd follow me. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was an unbroke horse that had never experienced this type of behavior from a human. It was, it was, uh, it was a good feeling. On my on my on my behalf, and a good feeling for the horse. Yeah, you and develop so, a rapport and trust and all that. Yeah, exactly. Trust is the factor, and uh, because um, with the Vietnam combat veteran, trust is a major factor. Yeah. So these horses helped rehab. You helped rehab through these horses. Yeah, I was there for. I was, I was out the ranch for. My mother worked in town, and uh, the family took good care of me. And uh, because they knew what I went through, my head injury, you know, I had headaches every day. And uh, when I go to town, I would buy a, buy a few bottles of whiskey and because I'd self-medicate myself for the headaches. And uh, my grandma always said to me, 
Bob, you look different every morning. Why is that? Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I was in a different state every night. <laughs> yeah, because I'd, I'd be outside in the barn drinking my whiskey for my headaches. And even in the morning, I'd go out there. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, wouldn't even eat breakfast. I'd just go out in the barn because that's where I kept the whiskey. So grandma wouldn't find it. <laughs> oh, wow. So um, how did you pull out of that and start you start your your you know how did you start your transition uh again i saw that you started school through was it rodeo scholarships or through the gi bill or a mixture well, uh, of both rodeo, rodeo scholarships would get me into the college yeah i didn't know that there were rodeo scholarships i didn't know that was a thing oh yeah that's a big thing my uh my cousin joe chase was a three-time national collegiate saddlebrunk champion back in the back in the 50s I had no idea. I had no idea that that was a college sport. Yeah. And it's called the NIRA, National Intercollegiate Rodeo Association. Oh, wow. And I would say there's about, I would say at least 400 universities, probably members of that NIRA. So you got to a point where you were able to ride the horse again. You were able to start doing rodeos and you, you got these scholarships to go to school. Yeah, I'd say about the late 70s when I started. And because uh, I still couldn't work, I had trouble with my body physically, and so I'd go to school to, for the money. You know, I got, I'd get like, I don't know, maybe three hundred dollars a month from the VA for for the on the GI Bill. Yeah, I guess I guess riding a, a horse for eight seconds is a little different than working eight hours. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's about it. And. Uh, I won a few titles in my life, and uh, and and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know at the time that I was a that I had these military disabilities. Yeah, but I loved the horse, and and um, I loved competing, and that's what that's what kept my survival going. Because I just I loved I loved riding bucking horses. So you you graduated school. Um, how did you get your start in film? Because uh, I've seen your IMDb, I've seen your uh, your your filmography. You got you've been in fourteen films, uh, eight or nine TV series, and, uh, including Doctor Quinn, Medicine Woman. It looks like you had a pretty regular guest appearance on there for uh, over twenty episodes. Yeah, and a number of documentaries. How did all that start? That didn't start till the eighty eighty nine ninety. Okay, when um, I was I was I was in living in White River, South Dakota, with my uncle Willie Burnett. And Uncle Willie had a pretty good sized ranch, and his health was declining. Before so, then, you you were just you were ranching uh, from ranch to ranch, or you ranching at your uncle's between family and, ranches. Yeah, gotcha. Going between school and and between before film. Okay. And uh, they were filming the movie Thunderheart with Val Kilmer and Sam Shepard, and, and um, we just walked, walked. My cousin Billy Burnett. We just went over, drove over there. To see in Kadoka, South Dakota, to see what was going on, and yeah. we're walking. We're walking around the set. I mean, the 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 camp, basically their headquarters. Just walking through it. Just walking around, <laughs> taking 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 some drinks and food food off the catering table, and <laughs> <laughs> just having a good old time. <laughs> we weren't. We weren't. We weren't even part of the show yet. It reminds me of a story in, in a previous episode that we had with uh, he's a his name is Rick Robinson. He's a uh, Emmy Award winning cinematographer, and the way he got into Hollywood is he 
had a 57 Corvette and he just basically went on to Warner Brothers Studios and just kind of walked on and he knew some of the guards and paid some of the guards to just walk on the set. It's a different time that you guys were in. I, I could I could see it right now. It seems like uh, the movie sets were a little bit looser back then than they are now. Yeah. It's amazing. So you're just so you're just walking around the set. You're yeah. walking around the set grabbing food from catering. And, what, and some 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 um production assistant, a PA, walks up to me. Excuse me, sir. Um the director wants to talk to you. And after we're done. <laughs> I think we're going to get kicked out of here right now. And the director wants to see Michael Apted. He directed some big movies. Yeah. And he was direct, he directed Thunderheart. The production assistant, I followed him and met Michael Apted. And um, would you like to wear a wig and a, and a Levi jacket? I said, what? <laughs> I, mean, I, I just, gave, getting, some, I just gave her some food, man. Yeah, I'm not getting kicked out of here. And, um, <laughs> I said, for what? Well, Graham Greene, he, you know, he was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Sporting Actor in, um, in uh, Dances with Wolves. Yeah. And he, uh, he was the, one of the main characters. Yeah. And so we, we, need, uh, we need someone to ride in this brown shimmy. So, sure. <laughs> <laughs> this, is how you got, this is how this is how you started your acting career. Director walks up to you and says, "Hey, you want to drive around in a brown Chevy?" Yeah, you <laughs> know, in, in all those car chase scenes in the movie Thunderheart, I'm in the Chevy. Me and Billy Billy Burton, who's uh, dumbing for uh, Val Kilmer, that's us in the brown Chevy. And we just a couple of times we just went we just went hit almost went head over heels in a twenty twenty foot ditch a couple of times. <laughs> And uh, we had no seat belts in the car, so <laughs> oh, we smoke another, another, another accident that, that looked like about to happen, but it never did happen. Billy was a heck of a driver. And uh, when the movie was over, we were Billy and I worked on the on the show for like I don't know sixty five days or something like that. And and then uh, when the movie was over, I'm eligible for. Union membership and into the Screen Actors Guild. That's an amazing that. way. To, that's an amazing way to start a career. I'm just saying, <laughs> doing stunt, doing stunt work, and I had no idea it was you know we're doing stunt work. <laughs> just <laughs> riding in a car. <laughs> <laughs> Did they invite you to the premiere? Did you get to go to the premiere? What, no, the how, premiere. The premiere was in L.A. and you know we're not yeah. going to no, no. We and they didn't they didn't have any premieres in South Dakota at the time either. Ah, oh, they should have. They should have since they filmed it out there, man. They totally should have. Yeah. So, so you got your SAG card because of it, though. You got your yeah, SAG card. I got my SAG card in 1992. I went to I went to my mom, Uncle Willie. I said, "What do you think I go to? You know, this is a. I got my union card, and what if I moved to L.A. and try and try see what I can do in the movie industry? Yeah. And well, Bob, Uncle Willie said, if you don't do it, you never will. So I packed up my pickup and drove to LA. With just yeah. just just drove just drove your pickup, no plan, just we're going to do it. Yes, that's right. Because oh, I, I had an income, even though my head injury at the time was just called a concussion. Yeah, yeah. No, TBI and and all that kind of came later with uh, with the NFL and and with Iraq, and they they kind of finally figured out what TBI, TBI and and PTSD were. You know. Yeah. Um, 
in the nineties, you had a re- you had a regular guest appearance on Doctor Quinn Messman for almost twenty episodes. Yeah. What was the what was the role? I just played a played an Indian in the because there was only like I would say eight or ten of us that that were reg- kind of not regular, but asked to come back and we need you for a scene and go back and ride a horse or on the scene or or um, protect the camp or something like that. Uh, so you you were basically played a, a an extra for a number of different roles within Doctor Quinn Medicine Woman. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's really cool because that was a big show back then. So Indeed. then you 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 met some friends in the industry, uh, obviously through through all this. Uh, um, I mean, I, I saw you you were in a Celebrity Wife Swap with Gary Busey, and I'm with and I'm with Busey, and that was more more of the recent stuff. But you did a movie with Gary uh, called Rough Riders, uh, and you actually had some speaking roles on that one. Yeah, I was, I, that was um, a big role for me. That was my last movie I did. And, and it, was a, it was a big miniseries on TBS, right? TBS or TNN? Yeah, four, yeah. four, hour, four hour miniseries. And that was over about Teddy Roosevelt's service uh, as a Rough Rider in Cuba, correct? Yep. And how yep. We, did, uh, we did the charge at San Juan Hill, and Kettle Hill, and took it over. And there was, you know, Tom Berenger played Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, I did. For the for the audience for the audience here, there was there's Tom Berenger, Sam Elliott, Gary Busey, Brad Johnson was big back then, uh, Captain Dale Die of Saving Private Ryan fame, George yeah. George Hamilton uh, back at, back then in the nineties, Arlie Ermy, and of course, and, and then there was a uh, Law and Order's Chris Chris Noth who was big Chris in Law and Order back then. Yeah, yeah. And Frank Frankie Quinn, Francesco Quinn, the eldest son of Anthony Quinn. Okay. Yep. Yep. And and Frank and I became good friends. Yeah. Now, I was living in northern L.A. County in a little, to- little, little town called Acton, A-C-T-O-N, at the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at the, I, had, I, had, I owned like six or seven horses on my six-acre little ranch. So you were and, pretty active working to, to be able to afford uh, a living like that. With yeah. Me. So you, you had a speaking role in Rough Riders. How did the role of Indian Bob come to you? How did it happen? <laughs> Well, that was a news to me too at the time. John Milius, who I had, who I had visited, and he wrote a couple of he wrote he wrote Geronimo, which I was also in with Robert Duvall and Gene Hackman, and that was a big and movie Matt Matt Damon, yeah. And um and um walking by, I was walking by um, John Milius's office at Warner Brothers one time, and I said, "Wait now, he wrote Geronimo. I'm going to say hi." And I met Leonard Brady, his uh, assistant, and. Hmm. They were really glad to see me because I was a Lakota, and and John is a big supporter of of Indian issues, and so and so I and uh, John's not here right now. I'll be back in a couple hours. Just hang around. So I did. I hung around and I office had and and John came in and and John and I visited for four or five hours in his office. Wow. And and um, then about a year later. I get a phone call from this casting agent and uh, she said, Mr. Primo, can you come down to my office and sign a contract? What do you mean sign a contract? No, uh, we have a role for you in the movie Rough Riders and we'd like you to sign a contract. I was in my car in three minutes <laughs> driving to LA <laughs> and, I go, and I signed my contract and, and uh, I, was, I was treated like a king because yeah. John Milius wrote the role of Indian Bob specifically for me. And John Milius is uh, like the premier screenwriter 
in LA even today. Yeah. <clears throat> like he wrote God, he you know, his his uh resume is endless. That's awesome. So so he wrote that specifically for you. Mm-hmm. Whole movie was filmed in Texas, all over Texas. And um all of a sudden I got a limousine pulling up to my front yard to pick me up to take me to the airport. <laughs> First time that's ever happened, I'm sure. Oh God, I should say so. And I said, "What? What? What?" That? I, I felt really privileged. And um, then my son was born in November 16th in 96. And uh, what, what? What could I? What could I give John for writing this role for me in this movie? And um, I named my son Talon Milius Primo. My son's middle name is after John Milius, Milius Primo. That's a, that's a pretty and, big, that's a pretty big honor. And when I told that, when I, I showed John the um, birth certificate, tears literally came to his eyes. And I, I, I felt really proud that I did the right thing, I think. Because what do you, what do you give to a guy who, who has everything, you know, materially? Yeah. And so, but when I, I just give John a hug and, John, I can't thank you enough. And that was it. <laughs> That's great. That's great. So you weren't the uh, only native on that movie. You had a. Uh, no, there was uh, one more. David Midthunder? Yeah. No, no, there was two more Midthunder and, uh, and another, I can't think, but. The, and, gotcha. um, and so, I mean, you were one of very few. What I was getting at is you're one of very few Native Americans in Hollywood at the time. Uh, was there camaraderie camaraderie with either other veterans or other Native Americans in L.A. at this time? Uh, not really. Mm. The camaraderie was was uh, jealousy, competitiveness. There's more yeah, competitive. Yeah, competitiveness, but uh, there was also a, ta- a, a bit of jealousy in it. Also, mm. <clears throat> that's unfortunate. This today. Um, uh, if you go back to, I think episode 140 in the archives and, and look through Jennifer Marshall, she's a Navy veteran that's out there in LA today. And they have a group now called veterans and media and entertainment. And I think they meet at least once a month, uh, as a support group to, uh, for veterans in the film industry, trying to make it, trying to make it out there. Wonderful. But I just wanted to share that with you that nowadays there, there are veterans, you know, that are supporting each other out there in LA. On, on obviously, I mean, from what your testimony is, unlike to what it was back then. Uh huh. Yeah, it was a it was a completely different ball game back in, back when I was living in L.A. She does still say that it is pretty isolated and and an isolating place, L.A. But she does say that there are veterans that are helping each other out there. Uh huh. So after after Rough Riders, um, you had a you developed some friendships out there, obviously with John Milius and Gary Busey, uh, and you ended up on a couple of reality shows. Uh, yeah. <laughs> towards the end of your career, uh, Celebrity Wife Swap, and I'm with Busey. That was late late 2012s. Um, how did that relationship develop? How did you? Uh, how did that? How did all that come to be? Uh, Gary had his own TV show called Life with Busey. Yeah, yeah. And I was on one of the segments. And uh, we spent we spent like a week in Sedona, Arizona, filming that. And um, it was and Gary. Gary's, in fact, I just talked to Gary a couple of days ago. We talk we talk very fairly often. Him and I. I look at your career, Robert, even before your film career, and it's almost like you were a, like a Lakota Renaissance man. Uh, 
you know, including your films, you were also had your own radio show um, and you're a basketball coach, correct? Yes. Gotcha. What were the, what were the name of the radio shows? My, uh, I had two of them. I would say at the time, it was the first veteran show in the nation called SITREP, Situation Report. Sure. And that was in um, 2009 to 2012, I think. Okay. So you had SITREP and what was the other one? The Warrior. It was that, a total, that was a American Indian show about Amer- national American Indian issues. And I, and I, on both shows, I interviewed generals, congressmen, leaders in the Indian country, yeah. um, tribal chair, tribal chair people, um, tribal leaders, and that that that, that show went nation, nation nationwide. You you also, including your radio shows, you were a spokesperson for uh, a lot of veteran issues and, and Native American veteran issues. Uh, you you did some speaking uh, to other tribes. I saw a YouTube video with you with a seminal, like a seminal Veterans Day. You, right. you talk about, and you've talked to me about the four Lakota virtues. Why are they important to you? What are they? Oh, yes. We call them the four cardinal virtues of the Lakota warrior. And we are taught these virtues from, from very young, at a, from a very young age, as soon as the youth could start to understand. And that's probably three or four years old. Bravery, generosity, fortitude, mm-hmm. and the most important is wisdom. My uncle David Harrison, Korean War veteran, he was in artillery and they were overrun and he was taken as a captive by the, wow. by the North Koreans. And But he was taught these four virtues in a I would say 49 or or 50 before the Korean War. And when he found out he's going to Korea, two elders, Spotted Horse and Red Fox. My grandfather took took my uncle down to to see them on the banks of the Grand River in in, uh, South Dakota on the reservation. Mm. And the the, the banks of the Grand River was right near Sitting Bull's cabin. His cabin and, is still there. No, no, it, it was taken to the. It was take his cabin was taken to the Chicago Rules Fair. Got you. I forget the year. In but at this 30, point, it was it was on the reservation still. Yes. Okay. And um, and uh, Spotted Horse and Red Fox went through these four virtues with Uncle David, and uh, and um, when he was a captive in the North Korean prison camp. Him and him and a Japanese American, they escaped in the middle of winter, and uh, they made it back to the American lines. They escaped North Korea. Yeah, from a North Korean North Korean prison camp. Oh my gosh! And when I got orders for Vietnam, I was at my grandma's ranch, and, and I'm, I'm on leave, thirty day leave before I went to Vietnam. Yeah. And uh, and uh, within the last week of my going to Vietnam, I'm at grandma's, and Uncle David shows up. He says, Bob, let's go for a walk. So we went for a walk on the ranch, you know, around the pasture and stuff. And he said, Bob, I'm, I'm gonna tell you a little story about about me when I went to Viet- when I went to Korea. So he told me about the four cardinal virtues. And he said, if it wouldn't have been for the four cardinal virtues, he never would have he never would have made it, and he never would have survived afterwards. 
They say, if one for these four virtues, I'd have committed suicide. And so we talked about them. And because we were both in combat units. Yeah. At this point, he was like, hey, let's, let me share this with you. Yeah. And so the, the four virtues were very important to me when I went over there, being in a combat unit. And I tried to, I tried to live by the virtues in Vietnam. So he attributes these virtues to not committing suicide, like after after combat. Yeah, he was a POW Frank, for about six or seven months. Oh wow! So in your talks that you gave back, probably like around 2011, 2012, it seemed like to me you were trying to reintroduce or talk about these virtues a lot because you think it could help other veterans. Yeah, on the radio, on um, getting getting these across, even with the definitions. Yeah, tribal definitions, not not dictionary definitions. Yeah, it seems like uh, from what you sent me, uh, the the definition of generosity is a very much different, a very different definition than what I would read in a, like you said, a dictionary. Yeah, it, yeah, because these it, are these are it, tribal it, definitions. It said something about of if you have two, you always give away one. Yeah, Tri- tribal physical property didn't didn't really mean a lot. But if you gave something away to help somebody, that that was the ultimate. Mm. You were considered a better person to help somebody else. And bravery, it seems like that you know, uh, bravery is almost a, tra- a traditional style of bravery, except for uh, more up close than than far away. Um, yeah. These aren't written down anywhere, correct? Except for what you've written me, or you 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 could probably find them on the internet. Yeah. On um about traditional values of the Lakota yeah, or, so, or something like that to do a search, to okay. do a search engine. Okay. But to really get the, the proper meaning of it, it's got to come from an elder. Understood. And, and, and uh, yeah, <laughs> you were, taught- you were, you were taught these not only by your uncle, but you also had a, a like you said, in the nineties, you got to really get in touch with your, your culture, your family. Uh, you were taught by some people that had some pretty strong lineage, correct? Yes. um, One of the most important people in my life when it comes to something like the virtues was Isaac Dog Eagle, who was the eldest eldest great-grandson of Sitting Bull. Oh, wow. And my my great-great-grandfather, Louis Primo, was Sitting Bull's interpreter. Yeah. So that's what brought Isaac and I close. And Isaac... Gary Gary came back to the reservation one time. Yeah. Twice, I think. Gary Busey. And I, Isaac adopted us as brothers. Oh, wow. Gary and I. <laughs> and and uh, adopted us as his eldest sons. Yeah. And Isaac passed away a few years ago. But he, him and, him and um, I said, Joe Walker, who was the eldest great, eldest great grandson of Rain in the face. And I'm I'm familiar with Sitting Bull. I'm familiar with Crazy Horse. Rain in the face sounds familiar to me, but I don't remember what his role was. He, he Rain in the face was one of the principal commanders of the of the Sioux and the Cheyenne at at the Little Bighorn. I understand. Okay. The indoctrination. How does that start? How long does it last? What What is it like to be in the presence of elders like that? Is it is it unique? Is it? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's really unique. It's okay. really unique because now all these elders have passed on. 
Yeah. And I'm one of the few people, uh, probably, I, I would say the only one living that has studied under these elders from different, from different Sioux tribes. And Oliver Red Cloud is the, is the grandson of the Red Cloud. So how did you come to be in the presence of these men? Uh, how did, I we, mean. We, um, we just sit and listen. And um, like with Joel Walker, him and I would sit in his house. We'd have coffee. And we start just start talking. And when you talk to an elder, you listen. Yeah. And uh, Isaac, Dog Eagle, would tell me a story about my grandfather and Buffalo Bill. And before this, you didn't know you were related to them? or Because you told no. me earlier on you were... I had no idea. Oh, wow. So they're the one, these, these elders are the ones that trace the family histories, almost. Isaac did. Wow. You can't really do research on the internet when you come down to something like this. Yeah, no. You got you to talk to your elders. <laughs> I tried. Because <laughs> <laughs> our, 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 uh, our history has been verbal, a verbal history. Yeah. Yeah. And so I talk, so in the, in the, in the 90, even, even in, even as late as 2012, I started talking to elders back home. Yeah. And then it was after, after that, within like a four year period, all these elders have died. But I had, but I had, I had, I have had the opportunity to talk to these elders and learn from these elders. Yeah. Now all of a sudden I'm an elder. <laughs> and and um, getting getting this type of of um, learning opportunities from these different elders, I'm 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 very privileged and honored to have learned from these these elders. What do you want to do with this information now that I want I want to help I want to help other veterans because Joe Walker was a Korean War veteran. And he's the only, and he's the only veteran, military veteran, of all the elders, because the other elders were holy men. But with these four cardinal virtues, I want to do a video that will help these veterans, because because uh, our youth were, were taught these from 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 a very young age, all through life. Then when we went through our our um our time period to be a, to be a, to be a man. Yeah. These, these virtues are stuck in their head and they know how to be a, a true warrior. And, um, that's why these, this is one, this is one, because of these virtues, these are the reasons why the Lakota, Ogallala, um, who have never had PTSD issues. Never had P never never had PTSD issues. No, because of these because of these virtues, and I know for a fact these virtues could help. Uh, Lieutenant Kalsu was in the hundred first at the same time you were, correct? Lieutenant who? Kalsu. I met him. I met him twice over there. Really? Did I met you? Him, I met him at the PX one time, and he's a big guy. And I was a spider, and we're out at the main PX, the headquarters, in, at Camp Eagle. Yeah. which was the headquarters for the 101st. And excuse me, I said, I'm Bob Primo. I said, from, from Standing Rock in North Dakota. And I, 
And I turned around, turned around. I saw that gold bar on his on his collar. <laughs> it's a second lieutenant. Oh, excuse <laughs> me, sir. <laughs> well, now, was you he know. pretty? Was he pretty well known as an NFL player at the time? Like, oh, yo, he was. He was the rookie of the year for the for the Buffalo Bills. Oh wow. Okay. See, I have no. I had no idea. Wow. And the guy that took his place as a lineman, offensive lineman, yeah, is in the Hall of Fame now. Uh, so Lieutenant Castle, he did pass in Vietnam, correct? Yes, he was killed in a, on a fire-based strip cord. You have made it your mission almost to to honor him? Yeah. Uh, by, um, by I wrote a letter. In, I started writing letters in 2016 or, yeah, 2016 to the NFL, to the NFL Hall of Fame, that there are five veterans um, who basically didn't have to, didn't have to go to war. And uh, these gentlemen should, should deserve some type of recognition by the NFL Hall of Fame. Yeah, I read your 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 paper that you sent to me, or your letter that you sent to the Hall of Fame on behalf of them. Um, you had a very lo- logical example with the NHL. Mm-hmm. Like the NHL has has done something similar than what than for what you're advocating, correct? Yeah, yeah. So I you, used um, I used as an example. I used um. Hobie Baker has an example. And who's Hobie? In the, NA, the it, National Hockey League. Now, that was like before my time, but before your time, correct? Like Hobie Baker was like World yeah, War II? We're talking, we're talking World War One. Oh, my gosh. I mean, wasn't a Hall of Famer by merit, but they made they made him a Hall of Famer by like in a special section for service members. And that's kind of what you're advocating with the NFL? Yeah. Got you. Well, there, there's, um, there's the five of the five, you know, Pat Tillman is one of them. Um, I can't remember the names of the uh, three other gentlemen. Got but you. But you one, did your research and you, you included them in your letter. Yeah. But the one gentleman in World War II on Iwo Jima, he got the Medal of Honor. Yeah. yeah. And you know, his, his dying words to, to, the, to his doctor, his dying words, the New York Jets, no, the New York Giants lost a, lost a, lost a good end today. He was wow. a, he played offensive end wow. and a heck of a receiver. Those were your dying words to to the doctor. Wow. Well, Robert, I'd like to I'd like to leave a parting shot for um, you know, I, I think you have a strong message with the with the Lakota virtues. Yes. I think uh, you have a lot to say for 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 veterans. Um, Robert, is there? Is there anything else that you would like to say or t- to our listeners that you think would be important to share? Time will heal. Time, time will heal. But if you think about the virtues, they will help. Bravery, generosity, fortitude, and the most important of all, wisdom. We have a, we have a saying among the Lakota. It's like, never give up. I served in Vietnam. I served in World War II. I served in Afghanistan. And VA serves us all. No matter when you served. No matter if you saw combat or not. There are benefits for veterans of every generation. See what VA can do for you. To learn what benefits you may be eligible for, visit www.va.gov. That's www. .va.gov
really appreciate Dr. Primo for sharing his life story. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is from our VA Veteran of the Day program. Every day, our digital media team honors a veteran on all of our social media platforms and with a blog on blogs.va.gov. You can nominate the veteran in your life by sending in a short write-up and about five photos to newmedia at va.gov. Gus Palmer Sr. was born in Redstone, Oklahoma, and was a member of the Kiowa tribe. In 1944, he enlisted and after basic training, went to the 413th Bomber Squadron as part of the 96th Bomber Group. Palmer served at the Royal Air Force Snetterton Heath in Southwest England as part of the 8th Air Force. Palmer served as a waste gunner in a B-17 Flying Fortress. He flew 18 successful bomb runs during his service. He also became friends with a fellow Kiowa, Horace Pula, who was an aerial photographer. Palmer appeared with him in several of Pula's photos, both wearing flight suits and war bonnets. Palmer honorably discharged from the military in December of 1945. Following his military service, he returned to his hometown. In 1958, he led an effort to revive a Kiowa veterans group called the Kiowa Black Leggings Warrior Society. In a book, Palmer explained that the reason he wanted to revive the society came from his World War II experiences overseas and his desire to give back to the community. He also wanted to honor the memory of his brother, Lidrith, who had also served and was killed in action in Germany. In a 2006 article from the Oklahoman, the Black Leggings annual ceremony was described as members dancing and singing dressed in black leggings and red capes, sometimes decorated with military medals and insignia. The society's color guard appears regularly at ceremonies, parades, and meetings across the state of Oklahoma. This is a unique organization, Palmer said in a 2002 interview with the Oklahoman. I'm proud to be keeping it like this, to preserve and celebrate. This is all tribal way, tradition, and custom. Palmer served as commander of the group until 2006, and according to a 2010 article in the Native Times, as part of his Sarmona regalia, he put 21 feathers on his lance to represent the 21 bombing missions he made in World War II. Palmer served as the commander of the group until 2006. He was also active in his tribe. He served as Kiowa chief from 69 to 70, and on the tribe's Constitution Revision Committee in 1984. Unfortunately, Palmer died in November of 2006 at the age of 87. Army Air Corps veteran Gus Palmer Sr. We honor his service. Ready. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a future Born the Battle veteran of the week so we can all learn their story, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle veteran of the week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov. And follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, RallyPoint, LinkedIn, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're hearing now is called Machine Gunner 
which is courtesy of the nonprofit Operation Song and was written by Marine veteran Mark Mule Kilhenny, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Have a great day. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gun. Firefight bullets fly to my brain. Simplify till we die another campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 7.62 round that'll cut them down in an instant. made bullet in my back Raining down there Punching that clock Get them boys, I'm laying down Cover machine gun bullets fly to my brain Simplify, do or die Another campaign Here we go, lock and load 0331, lug a thousand rounds And I ain't bringing back one